Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We start with one of the eternal, never-ending debates in British Columbia. What to do about the chronically clogged Massey Tunnel? This is one of the worst traffic bottlenecks in B.C. in the lower mainland. Now, remember the history here. The Liberals wanted to build a new bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel. Then the NDP came along. They said, don't forget that. Cancel, the, cancel that bridge. We're going to build another tunnel instead. Now new B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon says, no, 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 let's go back to plan A. We'll build that bridge. We'll cancel this new tunnel. And I got Eleanor Sturko standing by. First, have a listen to this here now. Now, this is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming in the NDP government going after Liberal leader Kevin Falcon and his idea to build the bridge instead of a new tunnel. Have a listen to this. If uh, Kevin Falcon continues to say that he's going to cancel this project when we've awarded contracts for it to proceed, when we built infrastructure like the Steveston Interchange uh, and the bus lane uh, that we're announcing today, he's going to have to rip it out, he's going to have to rip up contracts, and he's going to expose the taxpayer to more delays, more liabilities, and no solution in the future. Okay, let's discuss this now. This one is blown up into an issue on the campaign trail in Surrey South, where there is a by-election going on right now. Eleanor Sturko is the B.C. Liberal by-election candidate there. Pleased to welcome Eleanor back to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. So your NDP opponent there in Surrey South yesterday, Pauline Greaves, on the campaign trail, going after you and the Liberals for this idea to go back to the Plan A, to the bridge idea, and they say you want to build a toll bridge. What do you say to that? Well, you know, it was kind of a funny little, um, I guess, press conference, if you will call it, just basically set up to spread misinformation, to, you know, really fear monger among our South Surrey voters. Because, you know, if people think back to 2017, what they're saying and what they're trying to scare people with is the very thing that they themselves did in 2017. We had bridge construction with the preload and contracts. Uh, ready to go. And essentially by canceling a bridge that was being prepared to, you know, undergo its construction, they wasted a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars of hard earned wages, taxpayer money. Um, And, you know, that bridge, the irony of that, and them talking about delays and all this wasted tax money, this, this boogeyman of, you know, something that could happen in the future is something that they created themselves because that bridge would be open just shortly after this by-election. Yeah, it was scheduled to open this year if the construction on the bridge had continued, correct? You got it. It was going to be yeah, open in September. Yeah. And, you know, right. people need to remember, too, that what we're talking about was a bridge that had more capacity than what their tunnel is projected to have. It would have been ready for rapid transit, so we could have potentially been looking at future SkyTrain development. And, you know, yeah. based on this government's own modeling, the tunnel won't be saving any real time for drivers. Yeah. Now, so you are fully on board then with the idea of canceling this new new tunnel the ndp want to build a new tunnel now 
So you're, you support this idea, cancel that and go back to plan A, build the bridge instead. Is that correct? It's correct, yeah. And okay, I think the okay. thing that we need to keep in mind, too, is that they have not received their environmental assessment yet. So this bridge, right. all right, not the bridge, the tunnel may cancel itself. Let's, let's yeah. not, you know, let's not be confused that they have no tunnel right now. They have set up the Steveston interchange. Our uh, plan could be re-implemented and would likely be able to receive a, a new updated environmental assessment in a relatively short period of time. So we'd be good to go and get this thing open. What are you hearing from the voters in Surrey South on the by-election campaign trail here? I mean, are they telling you they want the bridge? They don't want the tunnel? You know, it's mixed. I receive a lot of feedback from people that they want the bridge. They think the tunnel is not a good idea. They think that it'll be harmful, even more harmful to, you know, salmon stocks. But the thing is, what I'm hearing most of all is how ticked off people are that tax money's already been wasted by the NDP. And now we're looking at up to 2030 before we're going to have any kind of solution for this traffic snarl up. Yeah. Speaking to Eleanor Sturko, she is the B.C. Liberal by-election candidate in Surrey South. Let me play a cl- another clip here for you, because the, N- the way the NDP are framing this now is that the Liberals want to bring back bridge tolls. Now, we know that the former Liberal government did bring in tolls on the bridges in, in the Lower Mainland. The NDP scrapped those tolls. I think it was it was certainly smart politics by the NDP. But, you know, now you got the new Democrats saying, well, just wait. The liberals want to bring those tolls back. Now, I, I know you're going to deny that, but let me play a clip here for you from your leader, Kevin Falcon, the B.C. liberal leader here on an earlier show. And here he is talking about John Horgan's decision to scrap those bridge tolls. Here's what he told me. What did the NDP do? Yes, they took off the tolls. Was that smart politics? It was smart politics. Was it good for the environment? No. Traffic growth has grown 30%. There's a lot of people now that are going to be spending a lot more time sitting in traffic with their cars idling away. And I would argue that that was not the right thing to do from an environmental point of view. Okay. So he says getting rid of the tolls was a bad idea. Do you agree with him? You know, I think that it's important to point out that he has repeatedly said that there would be no tolls on the George Massey Tunnel. And we're really talking about two separate issues. We're talking about, in that discussion, that clip, he's talking about the environmental impact of removing tolls, right? And what the NDP is trying to bring up and to scare people with is talking about affordability of tolls. And when we're talking about the affordability of this province, it's very funny that they want to stand on top of a mountain of failed promises and point fingers at, you know, us for imaginary tolls that are not in place. And, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that they have promise after promise of reducing the cost of living for individuals here in British Columbia, including providing a, a, a renter's rebate since 2017, right. which they have not delivered on. Okay, Kevin Falcon, the Liberal leader, your your leader has reiterated once again in the last 24 hours, look, don't fall for this fear-mongering. If the Liberals form government again, we won't put these tolls back on these bridges like the NDP are alleging. But, but let me play another clip here of Kevin Falcon speaking to me on an earlier show. And I, I encourage the listeners, listen carefully to what he says here because... There is like a little bit of wriggle room here on tolling. So here's Kevin Falcon speaking to me on an earlier show. Then I'll get your thoughts. If you built new infrastructure, would you consider tolling new bridges? Well, you know, we had a we had a tolling policy back then, and as I explained yeah. in the clip that you paid that you played earlier, that we said as long as there was a free non-tolled alternative available, it would be considered. 
but, you know, really there's very few places where it does make a lot of sense. So I think it's unlikely. Unlikely. So he says it's unlikely a, a liberal government would bring tolls back. Like, how is that supposed to reassure people? Though? <laughs> you know, um, it's important to note as well. So John Horgan himself had promised not to bring in tolls. And then at later discussions, he actually also has left the door open for tolls and said that TransLink could, in fact, you know, implement tolls. So, you know, um, at this point, it's hypothetical. NDP is in government. There's plenty of ways for us to look at paying for new infrastructure and also reducing environmental impact of, um, you know, vehicle traffic. So I think on both sides, whether we're talking about the NDP, whether we're talking about the Liberal government, um, you know, we're going to um, have to look at all the options possible. But certainly no government wants to increase, you know, uh, the burden of cost on individuals. So, you know, road pricing, the NDP has has also left that door open. Yeah, no, they they have talked about road pricing or or certainly not ruled it out. Eleanor Sturko, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's talk about the public sector strike action right now hitting B.C. liquor stores. This one really hitting bars, pubs and restaurants right now as well. We talked about this earlier this week. When I spoke to Stephanie Smith, who is the president of the union here, the B.C. General Employees Union, uh, about how this strike is going to come to an end or is it going to escalate, here's what she told me. It has been deafening silence and disappointing silence from not just the NDP government, but every single MLA. No one has said a word. And as I said, government has the capacity and the ability to end this strike very quickly. Okay, so the good news here now is that last night the union said that the government did reach out and talks are back on. Meanwhile, though, the strike is continuing. Let's talk to a couple of uh, business owners who are impacted by this. Eric Fergie is the co-owner of Fett's Whiskey Kitchen, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Eric. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for taking the time. Eric, how is this impacting your business down there at the Fets, uh, your Fets uh, whiskey bar? It's, uh, interestingly enough, it's, uh, the one thing it is on the shelf at the LDB stores is a specialty, uh, whiskey products. The problem is everything we use for our cocktails, our Prosecco's, things like that, that we just cannot get. Yeah. So it's the more sort of more popular or common brands that are the toughest to get right now. Yeah, the, the vodka, the gin, the tequila, yeah. Yeah, how is that impacting your business there? I guess people just got to have a backup choice if, they don't, if, they don't, if you don't have what they want, I guess, right? We are, we're scrambling for, you know, substituting products for, you know, our, our Manhattan or for our sour and things like that. So it's the cocktails yeah. that are the issue, which we sell a lot of cocktails. Yeah. Do you think that, what do you think of this strike? Well, of course, we chat about it quite a bit, my uh, my partner and I, and as she pointed out today, things were bad prior to the strike, getting products, uh, specialty orders. It's going to take weeks, if not months, to get this, just to get the shelves stocked again, and for us to get our orders, because we all have orders in the uh, that we've made prior to and during the, the strike. Uh, we're always, our orders are always the back burner. We, we're never serviced right away. So we're we're going to be behind. Our entire industry will be out without product for a good month. Yeah. Do you think it's come, do, after they come back? Do you think it's fair to you and your customers and your employees here to be sort of stuck in the middle of this thing? No, no, I, uh, I don't. And I, 
don't think anybody in the industry thinks is fair. Yeah. So what's your message there to the government and the union here? What, just get it settled? Get it settled, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yesterday, Jeff from uh, from ABLE said, you guys are at the negotiating table, so how about you drop the picket lines while you're talking? Yeah. And at least we can start getting back. We're not the – we're – we're a le- one of the least hard hit uh, restaurants. I mean, the the nightclubs and such yeah. that go through tons of vodka a week, for example, they can't get it. They'll they'll be laying off and closing soon. Eric, thank you for coming on. Great, thanks for having me. Eric Fergie, there, co-owner Fett's Whiskey Kitchen. Let's check in with Eve Charette now. Eve owns a number of pubs. Uh, Eve, thanks for coming on. Oh, hey, thanks, Mike, for having me. Yeah, you. Hey, Eve. What are the what's the name of your places? What what are the places that you own? Um, the Jolly Coachman, the Haney oh, Public yeah. House, the Fourteenth Avenue in Mission, and Sailor Haggers in North End, and Brewster's Pub and uh, Liquor Store in Surrey. Wow. Okay, you're a busy guy. You also own a, a cannabis store too. Is that correct? Yeah, we've uh, entered into that market. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah, you are you are a busy guy. How is this strike impacting you and your businesses? Well, it's uh, it definitely has been um, hijacked. Uh, we, we're uh, we're greatly affected because there's no supply chain for us to get our product. So I I do think that um, not receiving any orders on the cannabis retail side will will force the closure of some of our locations, whereas on the restaurant uh, side, I think, well, I know we haven't even recovered from the pandemic. So this could be, unfortunately, the, <laughs> the nail in the coffin for a number of operators. Um, we were just starting to uh, get some uh, steam on recovery towards, uh, you know, cash flow and catching up with our bills and back, uh, back payments for leases. So this is, this is huge. When you, you when you can't when you can't get any product, is would you possibly have to close any of your your businesses as a result of this? Well, listen, we're we're strategically looking at this every day and talking with our managers, figuring out um, where we're at with our um, with our inventory, move, transferring inventory around, um, and also we were fortunate in the fact that we we. We got some orders beforehand, but there will be a definite, if this drags on any longer, there is going to be a definite shift in hours and uh, people being laid off, which as president of ABLE BC right now, I have a number of um, operators throughout BC uh, telling me that they're already starting to, um, to lay people off and cut their hours because they're not, they weren't in a position to like restaurants uh, or or pubs to 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 stock up on all of uh, the products they needed, yeah. especially being that yes, we knew that there was um, potential job action, but the messaging sent to industry was was uh, and as an owner was that it wasn't going to be um, in the distribution uh, supply chain. But now oh. we're held hostage. We're that's that's what I was <laughs> that's what I what I was kind of told. Um, whether that who told, who told you that? Who told you that? Oh, it, that's just from discussions and and um, uh, some bureaucrats, right? So it, it oh. wasn't 
it wasn't um, something that was expected. I thought they were going to take different job action. Um, and then when it did hit us, we were, we were really, uh, we were stuck because your, your, your order deadlines were done on that Friday when it was announced and nothing was leaving the warehouses on, on the, on the, uh, on the Monday. And this right. is like for, for, for the restaurants, that's 40% of our, of all of our products that we have to get from that LDB for cannabis yeah. uh, retailers. That's practically, that's like a hundred percent of, uh, where they have to get the, their products. So I don't know if the public understand that we're actually in, um, we have to get uh, all of our product, most of it from the people that, um, you know, uh, the, from the government, we buy from them. And we're also in competition with, with them on the retail side. So we're seeing some fundamental flaws in the distribution uh, right. system right now. And it's going to, um, you know, as Eric said, we're not going to uh, have this, even if they get back to the table, the backlog is going to be immense. And I just, uh, I can't, uh, I can't imagine um, on the, on the restaurant side of things, how this is going to affect us because um, 900, a pandemic didn't, uh, didn't shut us down and bring us to our knees, but this has. Speaking to Eve Charette, he owns several uh, pubs and cannabis stores. Now it is interesting about cannabis, because I think a lot of people realize the government has got a monopoly there on liquor distribution, but you have to rely on the government distribution system for all your cannabis supplies as well. Is that correct? Yes, correct. So yeah. the LDB, uh, those distribution warehouses are um, where we get 100% of our cannabis currently. Yeah, yeah it's not you. So I know there's still a thriving. Uh, gray market or black market in cannabis sales in BC, you're not allowed to access that, right? You get in a lot of trouble if you did that. You have to go through the government. Yeah. 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 Nobody who has a, uh, a retail, a legal retail license will go that route. Um, no. there, you're going to see, you're going to see closures and stock outs. And uh, I, I mean, they're up in the Okanagan right now. There's already a store that's locked, locked up until the end of, until this strike is over. Um, and they're just not prepared to service. I think I, I'm not sure, but my message would be, you know, to, during this uh, uh, return to the table, I think it's very important that they open up those supply chains. Yeah, like for, for cannabis supplies, for example, are you getting any cannabis from the government right now? No, we're wow. getting um, nothing. Nothing. So, Wow. Yeah, there's some craft growers in the province. There's a program to uh, allow direct delivery, but the the process of uh, all the paperwork and the registration for that is quite lengthy. So, you know, it can go from two two weeks for these um, BC craft growers up to I don't know <laughs> six weeks, depending on the backlog uh, on the government side. So you're not uh, we have no access currently. And it's very limited uh, if the, we are allowed to, uh, or we create direct delivery from a craft grower. They're very limited in what they can offer. They can't service the industry. Okay, Eve, I hope for you and your employees that this is over soon. Thank you for, very much for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Okay, we continue talking about the liquor and cannabis strike in BC. I'm looking at a letter right now that has just been sent to Premier John Horgan. 
signed by a long, long list here of industry groups and tourism. Includes the BC Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Brewers Association, BC Hotel Association, Chambers of Commerce, uh, the Tourism Industry Association of BC, all pleading for an end to this strike. Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now, Executive Director at the Alliance of Beverage Licensees, representing bars and pubs. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Can you tell me what the, the, the letter is about and what you're hoping to achieve here? Yeah, so all last week, we were just begging both sides to get back to the table. Uh, and, you know, we did a bunch of media on this, and we kept pushing them, and they weren't moving. Now that they're finally back to the table, we just wanted them to know that this strike is continuing to cause serious damage to our industry. And as you said before, this is not our fight. It's, it's completely responsible to capture an entire liquor industry with $15 billion a year of 10,000 small businesses and 200,000 workers into this fight. So today we're saying enough's enough. Uh, we need both sides. You're back at the table. That's a great start. Um, but we need you to come up with a deal quickly because, you know, as, as Eric pointed out uh, 20 minutes ago on your show, it's going to take us weeks to recover from this as it is. So the faster we get back to work, the better. Are any places actually shutting down or laying off staff? We're just starting to see the impacts of it. So because the BCGU is still protesting and picketing in front of those warehouses, even though they're at the negotiation table, we still can't get essential products through to uh, the pubs and bars and restaurants and liquor stores in this province. So we're starting to see holes in shelves this week. Cannabis stores are already starting to reduce hours, do some layoffs. We expect in the rest of the liquor industry by this weekend or next week to be doing the same thing. And you know, the, uh, we've also asked in that letter, for, just as a show of good faith from the union, to stop protesting and picketing in front of those stores while negotiations are ongoing. It seems like the right thing to do. Okay, so stop picketing or stop the job action? We want them to stop the job action or the picketing yeah. outside of those distribution centers. Let us get the back to the flow of goods from those. I mean, as we said before, right, that's about 40% of the alcohol volume in this province comes from those warehouses. So the entire industry is being held hostage now from two parties in a labor dispute that have nothing to do with us. So you can imagine that the longer this goes on, the more damage it's going to do to our industry and those small businesses. We're starting now with a few layoffs in some cases, but as this goes on another week or so, it's going to cause yeah. serious disruptions. Would you say that this is a, a larger impact than maybe people think or realize? Like, I'm just taking a look at all the, the signatories on this letter yeah. here, and it's not just sort of the bars and pubs and the cannabis stores, but it's like the chambers oh. of commerce. It's the tourism industry associations. It's the hotels. Exactly. Yeah, this, this issue is significantly bigger than two parties squabbling in a labor dispute. This is having massive impacts across the entire liquor, hospitality, and tourism industry, which is why this broad group of industry associations have gotten together to write this letter. We want to remind government and the BCG and the public exactly what these impacts are. It's not just a few stock outs on shelves, right? I mean, as Ivan pointed out a while ago, we are still recovering from the financial devastation of the pandemic. All of these pubs and bars and restaurants took on extra debt. We have staffing shortages, tourism communities that rely on us to provide products and services. We have events that are being canceled because they can't access alcohol. Right, so this is this is on the verge of becoming quite serious, which is why our broad coalition of industry associations today are saying we need to end this now so we can get back to work and restart the, this economy. Okay, do you want to, what is your read of the government's willingness here and the two sides to negotiate? Like I thought it was kind of ridiculous here for the last week. They weren't even talking. Well, I mean, I blame both sides at this point, honestly, right? I, I don't I don't care uh, what the dispute is about anymore, and I don't really care who's right or wrong. 
on it was if you weren't even talking, you can't resolve a dispute. So this yeah. week they did what they were always going to have to do and sit down and start to talk about their issues. So that's the first step. That's a really positive one. The next step for us is let's stop the job action while you're pursuing negotiations. That just seems fair that you'd stop punishing BC's small businesses and the 200,000 workers our industry employs while you're at the negotiating. Well, well, you know, I spoke to the union president on the show earlier this week, and she showed no indication at all that they would stop job action because, as she said, it's like the biggest hammer they got to go after government. Look, I get it, uh, and I get that they've got the right to strike. That's not what this is about. You don't have the right to disrupt a $15 billion industry of 10,000 uh, 10, businesses and 200,000 jobs just because you're unhappy with how the negotiations are going. We are not a tactic. You know, our industry will not be a, you know, a collateral damage in their labor dispute. So the best solution here for everyone is come up with a deal quickly and so we can, everyone can get back to work. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. Have a great day. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about rules of the road now. And specifically, here's an interesting question. Should you be allowed to turn right at a red light? Now, everyone knows, of course, you're allowed to do that now. You come up, you stopped at a red. Of course, you're allowed to turn right. Some jurisdictions, though, do not allow you to do a right turn at a red light. And there is some statistics that indicate that turning, allowing right turns on a red light can lead to more accidents and even fatalities. I got Sandy James standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. This is driving instructor Rick August on the correct way to do a right turn at a red light. Have a listen. Talking to you today about turning right at an intersection that has a red light. I had some different questions from viewers about this, so I thought I would make a video and clarify some of the information about turning right at an intersection that has a red light. Yes, you can do it. But first and foremost, you have to come to a complete stop first, yield the right of way to all of the road users, pedestrians, people on bicycles and scooters. And then when the way is clear and you have brought the vehicle to a complete stop at the correct stopping position, you then can turn right. Okay. Okay. So there you go. That is the correct process for making a right turn on a red light. Should you be allowed to do that, though? Let's discuss now with Sandy James. Sandy is a city planner, writer, editor at Viewpoint Vancouver. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And uh, I was really interested in the article you wrote about this for Viewpoint Vancouver on this. So let's talk a little bit about how this... People may not realize that there was kind of an evolution on, on rules of the road, right, about allowing a right hand a right turn on a red light, right? Well, that's right, Mike. And I I really didn't know it because I would have been in the backseat of my parents' car (laughs) at the time this changed. But in about 1973, there was a gas crisis. Uh, OPEC did a squeeze on the availability of oil in North America. And gas actually went from a cost of 33 cents to 55 cents. Now, that's the equivalent of $3.67 today. But what we also forget about buying gas in the 1970s is that fuel economy was not that great. The average vehicle vehicle got about 11.9 miles to the gallon, um, which, would, which would be the equivalent of 19 liters per 100 kilometers. So right. it was one-third the efficiency of today. 
So what happened is that um, the uh, National Energy Department of the U.S. decided that for energy efficiency and also the fact that it would save drivers one, two, three, or four seconds, that they would allow a right turn on red. Now, prior to that, half of the jurisdictions in the U.S. did not have right turn on red in the 70s. And indeed, today, New York City and Montreal are, are two of the few cities that do not allow right turns on red. Yeah, that is kind of might surprise people, and I just learned that today. And and it, yeah, New York City. So if you if you drive up, if you're driving in New York City and you're at an intersection with a red light, you you, you can't turn right there. It would if, not be a good idea. No. Yeah, yeah, you'll have a New York City cop uh, on your on your on your tail there. It sounds like okay. It's it's interesting as well that the argument for allowing a right turn on a red was because what they figured too many people were like idling and just burning gas unnecessarily. So go ahead and let them turn. Correct. It was about fuel economy. And even today, uh, if you see courier trucks, those trucks only turn uh, red, or excuse me, they only turn right turns when they're driving just to keep the truck from waiting in the middle of the intersection to complete left turns and to reduce idling. So um, couriers still do that. Now, Now, what was curious about the right turn on red is that they found that permitting that, and this is the International or the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, found, and this is 40 years ago, they found that by allowing the turns that increased pedestrian crashes by 60%, and for cyclists it was 100%. But at the time, um, we never really looked at serious injuries or fatalities. We just really wanted to have that energy saving. Okay, yeah. Now, this is where it really gets interesting, because when you start drilling down on some of the studies about whether allowing a right turn on a red light, does it create more crashes? Does it create more accidents? Does it create even more fatalities, right? And you've also mentioned in your article that this was studied in the city of Toronto, correct? Yes, and this was done about five years ago, and the Toronto Public Health produced a report on it, and they showed that allowing the right turn on red resulted in 1,300 pedestrian injuries and deaths from 2008 to 2012, and so that is actually 13% of all serious injuries and deaths due to vehicle driver crashes. And as you know, Mike, we used to always talk about fatalities. But you and I know lots of people that have had serious injuries and crashes. And thank goodness we're now looking at the implications for them as well. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, I don't know, in some ways a surprising statistic when I was reading this. Like, really? You're talking that many injuries and fatalities just from these right-hand turns? Because as we heard that driving instructor say in the yeah. audio that we just played, you know, the the safe and the proper way to execute a right turn on a red light, you must come to a complete stop at the designated stopping area. You have to you have to yield right to oncoming traffic, pedestrians, cyclists, and then you can do your right turn. So obviously there's a there's a safe way to do it. But do these That's statistics correct. suggest that, you know, some people are not turning safely? I, I think that would be generally what these statistics are saying. I think part of it, too, is that we don't know the history of why we were allowed to do the right turn. And part of it is the cities, uh, you know, as we get to a population that will be 25 percent 
over 65 of seniors and we're densifying cities, we have to ask again whether um, we have to take a look at the right turns, see if they are increasing fatalities and serious injuries, and have a discussion about um, what we should be doing. Do we get really good driving instructors for everybody? Do we uh, take a look at the intersections and reduce right turns on reds on the main ones? Those are the kind of discussion items we need to have. Okay, so therefore you think that maybe we should go back in time and go back to the original rule, that if there's a red light, you can't turn. Is that right? Well, no, I don't think we ever go back in time. I think we go forward in time, but we have to talk about equity for all users. And if it's in a downtown area and there are seniors or folks that are disabled or with with children, um, should we be thinking again about the right turn on red? Now, something that the city of New York has done is they have a leading pedestrian interval. And what an LPI means is that the pedestrian actually gets a bit more crossing time. Mm. And they've found they've actually reduced their accidents at, at intersections by 50% just by allowing the pedestrian to have an advanced screen ahead of a car. Oh, okay. And the cost, oh. and the cost of putting those in is nominal. It's about 1200 U.S. per inter- intersection. Right. Where would most of these, if there was an accident or a collision caused by a right turn on a red light, would that be, I wonder what the most common sort of hazard would, would there would be. Would it be someone, you know, potentially hitting a pedestrian or a cyclist, or maybe it's a, a motorist coming from the other direction? Like, where, where do you see the sort of hazard or jeopardy there? The jeopardy, you know, in terms of, of what causes driver crashes, there's tr- three things. One is driver inattention, driver speed, and driver intoxication. So, you know, those are the three factors. In the city of Edinburgh, they actually reduce speed down to um, 30 kilometers an hour throughout the city. And they had a 33% reduction in serious injury and accidents. Uh, so so I think it's you can probably look at all three of those items and, you know, if you talk to a police officer at an at accident crash pedestrian site, um, as, as, I, as I unfortunately had to do, um, they, the number one thing they always say, uh, the driver always says, is I just didn't see them. Yeah. Do you think they should lower the speed limits, especially in urban areas? I mean, there had been a movement, and some municipalities have adopted this, like bumping down the maximum speed to 30 clicks an hour on side streets. Do you think that should be the rule everywhere? I, I think, I think again, everything is contextual. I think in neighborhoods, um, they've now shown, as, as in Edinburgh and uh, in Dublin, that reducing um, the speed limit to 20 miles an hour there, which would be 30K here, did result in a 31% drop in death and serious injury. But what it also did is it increased the number of cyclists. And so that would mean uh, someone uh, for all ages and abilities from 8 to 80 was able to, to bike more than once a week. And they also found that nitri- nit- nitrogen oxide emissions decreased. So they've actually shown that they saved 38 million pounds in three years. So that's equivalent to 60 million Canadian dollars just in slowing traffic. And uh, again, they're like us. They're a, a place that provides um, health care. And so that is the cost saving. Last question for you, Sandy. Do you think that it's maybe too late to put the genie back in the bottle here? Like, I'm just thinking about all the drivers out there, maybe a lot of them behind the wheel right now, saying, like, wait a second, you're going to tell me I can't turn right on a red light now? Forget, forget about that. I do that every day while I'm driving. Like, 
I, I have a feeling a lot of drivers would not like the idea of changing the rule. Mike, we have the best drivers in British Columbia. And okay. you know, they, they want to be prudent and they don't want to be an accident. And we also have the best citizens in British Columbia. So I think it's about talking about what's safest, taking a look at the statistics, doing some studies, figuring out where these where are the best places for these intersections that might not have that, that might prudently not have a, a, red, yeah. a right turn on red. OK, food for thought. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Just a delight. OK, Appre- 